Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In 1811, America's largest slave rebellion occurred in the new territory of Louisiana. Skillfully timed and ultra-violent, the rebellion was fueled by the dream of a free republic for freed slaves. With the Haitian Revolution in mind, nearly 500 enslaved men marched for freedom, leaving many dead plantation owners in their wake. After nearly capturing New Orleans, the rebels were tortured and mutilated, and steps were taken by officials to erase the event from American history. On this episode, we discuss the German Coast Uprising of 1811. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers that help shape the future of the American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, The Conversation's Always Growing. And if you look at the page, by the way, it says how frequently I respond. And it's always facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. If you're interested in meeting me in person or scheduling me for an appearance for historical societies uh, or local libraries or anything of that sort, uh, you can visit my author's website, www.bradykreitzer.com. All the information's there. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion of rebellions in America by specifically focusing on a region of the country that, by 1804, was fairly new to most Americans, and for the people who moved there, probably didn't feel very American at all. Of course, I'm talking about the vast expanse of territory on the western shore of the Mississippi River, known as Louisiana. Now, you may be familiar with the story of how the Americans acquired Louisiana, but it basically was a surprise. Uh, In the uh, administration of Thomas Jefferson, as he was gearing up for his first bid at re-election, he needed something to hang his hat on. He was able to broker a deal with Napoleon in the greater context of a war against Britain, Uh, for the acquisition of 828,800 square miles of land that became known as the Louisiana Purchase. That basically doubled the size of the United States of America at the beginning of the 19th century, and it guaranteed Jefferson's re-election in 1804. It was so popular, loved by both sides, left and right, if you want to say that, uh, that many wondered if we even needed another party besides Jefferson's Democratic-Republican Party. So as the story goes, at that point, all of what is today uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, all the way really up to almost Idaho, uh, all of that becomes America at that point, and that's great for us. But the reality is, 
especially on the ground in the territory of Louisiana, really for the next seven years. Louisiana wasn't really all that American at all. And if you visit the region today, many people will still say it has a flavor unique to anywhere else in the USA. Of course, I'm talking about primarily the city of New Orleans, and New Orleans will be at the heart of tonight's episode. Uh, for tonight, we're talking about what many believe to be, and the numbers are hard on this, so uh, we're being speculative, but I feel pretty confident in this, the largest rebellion of enslaved peoples in American history. We're talking about the 1811 German Coast Uprising. Putting this into perspective, the 1811 German Coast Uprising in Louisiana will happen just before the Battle of Tippecanoe and Tecumseh's uprising in the north. Now, when you consider those events happening close to the same time, at least in the same year, America can feel like a pretty unstable place. Today, looking back, of course, we have the comfort of hindsight, all historians do. But in 1811, things were not that clear-cut. And I think that's what we need to talk about today, because this is a rebellion unlike Tecumseh's rebellion, which has really gotten a lot of attention lately. And there are statues of Tecumseh all over this country. This is a rebellion that's largely been erased from history. And I use that word erased because uh, it, it indicates a very clear, very deliberate act. And when we hear the story and we hear about the events and you see the response, I think it'll become very obvious that this was uh, erased from history. So we're going to talk about that, uh, the role of the 1811 rebellion, and what it means to us uh, in the 21st century today. So before we get there, a couple things we need to touch on. A few episodes ago, if you are willing to look back, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. Buckle up. We talked about uh, what I consider to be one of the major dramatic, paradigm-shattering, earth-shattering events uh, of the of the early uh, 20, 19th century, uh, we called the Haitian Revolution. It was a terrible war. It was a bloody war. But in the end, an island of enslaved peoples who were treated in some of the worst, most brutal conditions won their independence, won their freedom, and established a republic of free black men and women in the Caribbean. We must remember, even though it seems far, if you live in the United States today, Haiti seems distant. We must remember how interconnected the Atlantic world was at the beginning of the 19th century. We must remember how an event in Haiti could send shockwaves through the New World. Because you'll recall, beginning in roughly 1791, going all the way to 1804, the Haitian Rebellion, or the Haitian Revolution, the establishment of a free black republic, was being closely watched in the United States, especially by the slave-owning class of the American South. Because to them, that was a literal manifestation of their worst nightmares, slaves rising up in violent rebellion, and a justification for the very harsh measures that they used to punish the people they enslaved 
all throughout the American South. They were extra harsh, uh, killing, raping, maiming men and women that they uh, legally owned uh, with the fear that if they didn't do that, if they cut them any slack, that they would end up like the planters of uh, Saint-Domingue, as we talked about. So, it's never that far. And the Haitian Rebellion, the Haitian Revolution, and this is what you must understand, will implant itself into the minds of America's slave-owning class in such a way that it almost becomes an obsession for them. There is always now a boogeyman around the corner. And when that boogeyman is behind your plantation house, when your that boogeyman is held in bondage on your property by you and your family, that becomes uh, much more than a concern, it becomes a threat. And this story, what we're going to talk about today, the German Coast Uprising of 1811, is sort of, again, that worst nightmare for these planters come true. And it happens in a place, as we mentioned, the Louisiana Territory, that isn't really all that American to begin with. It always feels different. It always feels alien. And uh, it's important we understand it and talk about it. So, let's begin. If you ever see uh, a slave plantation, and if you go through the South, there's a lot of these you know mansions you can tour. Keep in mind a few things. Uh, one, I've been on many plantation tours. Uh, number one, everything you see in the South from before the Civil War, beautiful architecture, wonderfully manicured gardens in both upkeep and design, were designed and constructed by unfree peoples. The greatest carpenters in this country, at least in the South, the greatest gardeners, the most proficient farmers, were all enslaved men and women. The greatest cooks, the greatest bakers, um, you name it. That's the, the dream of the South. The people that had the money in the South, had the prestige, did not value hard work. That was jobs for slaves. So if you go to one of these plantations, and they talk about the architecture and how long it took to build it and design it and how wonderful it was, just remember who actually built it. The second thing you must understand is, and some plantations do show you this, uh, is that a lot of the slave quarters have been removed from these plantations because it makes us feel very uncomfortable. I went to a plantation outside of New Orleans that was involved in this event we're going to talk about today. And I referenced it talking to uh, some acquaintances I was with, not as a plantation tour, uh, but a tour of a slave labor camp. And some people looked at me like my hair was on fire. Because slave labor camps sounds very bad. That sounds like something that really bad people do. It's not something we do here in this country. But I sort of did it intentionally. Because I wanted them to think, you may not like what I said, or how it makes you feel, but am I wrong? Just because we call them plantations in the 21st century... Does that make them any less than slave labor camps at one point? And again, that's up to you to decide. Uh, but when you're dealing with that environment, painting the picture of 1811, uh, the politics of uh, a, a plantation and the, and the inner workings of a plantation are really important for us to understand here. 
because this story especially requires that background information. So first things first, the Louisiana Territory was something totally new to most Americans. After it was purchased in 1804, Americans begin moving there, but they find when they get there that there already is a very unique, mixed, pronounced culture in and around the city of New Orleans in 1811. For the American administrators who get there, they have to deal with this. The American governor on the scene in 1811 is a man named William C.C. Claiborne. And Claiborne is in way over his head whenever he gets to Louisiana because, remember, it was originally a French territory uh, for about 200 years before this, and then a Spanish territory. So you have not just Americans living there now, but you have pronounced French influence there, pronounced Spanish influence there. You have a group called the Cajuns, uh, who were transplants from Canada during the French and Indian War. Uh, refugees forcibly moved into the bayous of Louisiana. By the way, have you guys seen the videos of the Cajun Navy um, saving people in Houston? My goodness. If that doesn't make you love America, nothing will. And, uh, of course, thoughts and prayers go out to everyone involved in Houston. Uh, find a good cause that will help you donate and support any way you can. But these Cajuns always come through, brother. They always do. Uh, at any rate, they were there in 1811. They were there in 1763, for that matter. Um, but this is a unique culture in its own right. On top of that, you have a pronounced Native American influence. And what really bothered William C.C. Claiborne, the American governor, was that you had a huge population of free black men and women in the territory. And these are men and women that, at least for the men, participate in the territorial militia. Uh, these are people that have some rights, whereas if you look at the rights of uh, black men and women in other parts of the United States, there's very little to none, uh, if, even if they are free. And this becomes a very difficult situation because the challenges you face as a governor of that really, truly melting pot environment are far different than any other territorial governor would have to face. One of the things that really, uh, I think, keeps William C.C. Claiborne awake at night is the fact that there are huge numbers, thousands uh, of slaves who live in the area uh, who are not just uh, recent arrivals from Africa. There are some, but they're also very heavily recent arrivals from the Caribbean, uh, particularly Cuba. And some of them were even in Haiti before they were bought and sold and transferred to Louisiana. So you not only have this built-in fear of a slave rebellion a la Haiti, but you have literally enslaved peoples in the territory who were from Haiti itself, certainly in the last 10 to 15 years when the rebellion was going down. So this all sort of colors the territory of Louisiana as a frightening uh, powder keg. And whether that fear was justified or not, as we'll see, for William C.C. Claiborne, that fear will be justified. Uh, you always felt like the situation could spin out of control very quickly if you were a slave owner. Uh, and we'll see it happen. Now, a few things about uh, the slave owners who live in Louisiana at this time. Many of them have French or Spanish last names. They are theoretically, and I say theoretically, American citizens now, but the, the American presence, that sense of Americanism on the ground 
in Louisiana is still not uh, pervasive. It's still not uh, apparent. I mean, this is a place that's mixed. Even if you go to Louisiana today, if you go to New Orleans, there's no city like it. It's almost like you can see the history and the different cultures layered on top of each other uh, over 200 years. You really feel like you're in the midst of a historic tidal wave, and we're just a part of it. And I love New Orleans for that reason. I took my honeymoon there for crying out loud um, because I knew it would just be an experience I would never forget. And it absolutely was. Uh, but for them in 1811, Louisiana had all of that and more. Uh, and in many ways, it had a dark cloud hanging over it. Now, talking about plantations, as we've mentioned, many of these plantation owners are new Americans, uh, if questionable in their allegiance. And this is by far the richest region in the country in terms of individual peoples. The mansions along what they call the River Road uh, between New Orleans, the Mississippi, and Lake Pontchartrain are things you couldn't even dream of in 1811 for most Americans. And there they are, designed and built by enslaved peoples uh, as a testament to the wealth of these plantation owners. The richest people in the country, by far, because they're growing things that you really can't grow anywhere else in North America. And they are, interestingly enough, not tobacco, not cotton, at least not always, but sugar. And we talked about what Haiti and now Louisiana have in common, and it's the production of huge quantities of sugarcane. Sugarcane is still prevalent in and around New Orleans today. So you have this sort of, I would say, almost transplanted uh, Euro-Caribbean culture in North America. Uh, and with that, all the challenges that come with it that many Americans are not prepared uh, to deal with. This story will begin at the plantation level. The inner workings of a plantation basically go like this. You have a slave owner or a master on the plantation. This man is usually super wealthy, extraordinarily wealthy, uh, because buying people is expensive. Beneath them, uh, you have the people who actually leave the mansion or the big house and go into the fields. Always white men. We call the overseers. And the overseers are more like your uh, poor working class whites, usually Scots-Irish, uh, usually from recent immigrant families, always considered to be, I think, a class below, even by the planters who employ them, the overseer. Beneath the overseer, you have an individual known as the slave driver. And this is where the story becomes murky and complicated, because in many cases, as we'll see today, the slave driver is typically a black man utterly and totally complicit in the enslavement, uh, the denial of human rights, and in some cases the rape and torture and murder of his fellow uh, of his fellow neighbors. So this is where the story becomes really tough. Why would anyone do that, you might ask? Well, you're still a slave, but you might get better housing, you might get better clothing, you might get a little better food. That's the idea. Uh, and Slave drivers are going to be an integral part of this story, too. 
better food, what do I mean? Well, if you look at the food that enslaved peoples were eating uh, around this time, and there's this great rebirth movement of this in culinary history or historic food ways, um, they were eating what they could grow on their own. Because the slave master would not give them anything lavish or even anything that desirable. He'd give them the scraps and the leftovers. So they would eat parts of, say, slaughtered animals uh, that other other uh, that plantation owners didn't believe were desirable cuts of meat. Uh, they would eat the ribs. They would eat uh, of a pig. They would eat the legs of an, and wings of a chicken. Um, today, these all foods, uh, typically dipped in cornmeal and fried, are considered southern food. You know, uh, cornbread, southern food. Uh, greens, southern food, but the reality is, and this is part of the disconnect we have, southern food is really just the food of the enslaved peoples. Uh, you know, the very wealthy would never be caught dead eating uh, collard greens. I mean, that was a collection on hodgepodge of what they'd consider to be undesirable vegetables. Uh, but this is what the enslaved people were eating, so be careful with southern food. Uh, study the history of where that food comes from. You'll see it really isn't southern food as much as it is the food of the enslaved. And again, new work is being done on that. Um, but what you're going to find with this uh, is that that difference would drive uh, a, a man to become a slave driver. Better treatment from the master. Maybe regular meetings with the master. But again, they are complicit in the institution of slavery with their fellow men and women. And, and this is one of the important lessons of history. We love to talk about history that makes us feel good. I appreciate that. But we're doing ourselves no favors by ignoring the stuff that makes us feel bad or makes us feel, you know, sort of gross. Uh, because this is part of the story too. You didn't do it. You weren't there. You don't have to take a blame for it. No one does. But it is something we have to talk about because it is part of the larger legacy and story. Um, and the people involved in this rebellion are really counting on us uh, to tell their story because there have been major efforts to eliminate this. So we're going to go to January of 1811 outside of New Orleans to a plantation of a man named Manuel Andre. And we're going to see Andre is really not unique at least amongst his neighbors, and how he makes his money. Uh, he enslaves many people, he sells sugarcane specifically, and he's one of the richest people in the country. On Andrew's plantation, uh, there is a movement afoot. Call it a secret movement, call it a sleeper cell type of movement. But there have been regular meetings amongst the enslaved peoples on his plantation about the potential of fighting back, about the potential of trying to fight for their freedom uh, through pretty brutal means of rebellion and warfare, in the same vein as what happened in Haiti. This story doesn't begin from the lowest level uh, of the enslaved. This story begins with one of these slave drivers, a man named Charles de Londe. Charles de Londe, again, uh, was the slave driver on Andre's plantation. So he had more freedoms, uh, but still not free by any means of, of these people. And he used his power, his position, his influence, 
uh, to, again, uh, gain information, gain intelligence, and potentially uh, gain the freedom of the people that he lived alongside. January of 1811 is a busy time in New Orleans. And this is something that uh, in the South, in this region, after this event, very few people will talk about. Uh, but as historians, we can see this and we can interpret this ourselves. But January of 1811 was a really busy, really happening time uh, in and around the city of New Orleans because you were right in the middle of the lead up to an event still celebrated, a defining feature of the city, Mardi Gras. And during this time, uh, there was massive amounts of alcohol being drank, uh, big parties in the city of New Orleans. When I say massive amounts, I literally mean hundreds of gallons of Madeira wine, of ale, uh, of whiskey, you name it. It's one big party, and some things never change if you've ever been to Mardi Gras. But it's also another busy time, because at this time, uh, the governor has actually sent the dragoon, uh, American Dragoons, that is to say the very finest professional soldiers in the region, out away from New Orleans to sort of antagonize the Spanish in some of the territories they still hold. So what you have going on here, at least in the minds of Charles de Lomp, is this idea that he knows that all the people in power are probably going to be drunk or hungover uh, from this big party. And he also knows that the really strong and disciplined troops in the region, the Dragoons, are nowhere to be found. They're off chasing Spanish ghosts. So for him, knowing this information that he develops and procures as a slave driver, someone who sort of has one foot on the inside as far as hearing information, getting news, this is his chance. This is his opportunity. If there's going to be an uprising, this is a clear and concise calculated maneuver. Timing is everything. This is when you should rise up. Now he'll be joined with uh, really a lot of people who will be leaders of this movement. We always say Deland is sort of the main uh, fixture of this, the main driving force. Uh, but again, the people that are also involved in this potential uprising show just the diversity that you have in Louisiana, even by 1811 standards. Uh, the two other people that will help him are two men from the Ashanti tribe of West Africa, uh, a, a warrior class of people who had only recently been transported across the Atlantic against their will and sold into slavery. So these are men who have the respect of the people around them and know how to fight. Uh, their names are Kuk and Kwamana. And if you don't know those names, please remember them, because this will be the largest single slave uprising in our nation's history. And these are people that I think deserve recognition uh, for what they did. So Delond, Cook, and Quamana will rally troops and rally uh, uh, men of fighting age. Uh, and they will effectively strike in January 8th of 1811. Now, the initial strike is going to be on Manuel Andre's plantation. And it's going to happen there because that's what Delonde, as well as Cook and Quamana, are most familiar with. But understand, these people had repeatedly uh, been abused, had been tortured. Uh, some men had their teeth knocked out with hammers and chisels uh, as punishment. Some were branded, whipped. Uh, one way that 
plantation overseers and even masters would get back at uh, rebellious men would be to rape their wives in front of them. I mean, these are people that had been tormented with a degree of callousness and cruelty that is, quite frankly, inhumane. And part of their rebellion was that it was going to be terrible and bloody. I mean, whenever Delonde and Kukunquamana started this, what did they have? They didn't have guns. They had sugarcane knives. Uh, they had axes. They had picks. They had farming equipment. And that's going to make for a pretty bloody scene. So I'm not going to paint these people out to be angels by any means. Uh, but it was a violent world, and they believed that only extraordinary violence could achieve their goals. Uh, and that's a terrible thing. Uh, but you have to understand this in context. Violence was an everyday part of the equation. So they get these cane knives. And a cane knife, if you've never seen it, uh, the blade is about... Uh, 18 inches long, right around there. And it has a unique curve to it on the inside, almost a hook, almost a machete with a hook. Because it's designed to cut the sugar cane uh, by slicing it and then running the blade up the cane to strip it. That is uh, a very effective means of harvesting sugar cane. As it turns out, it's going to also be a really violent way of attacking someone. Because Manuel Andre's plantation will be attacked in the middle of the night, beginning January of 1811. Uh, and the results will be catastrophic. We can read some of Andre's uh, recollections of the event. Like I always tell my students, if you want to know how it really happened, ask the people that were there. Here's what Andre says. Uh, he says, quote, An attempt was made to assassinate me with the stroke of an axe. My poor son has been ferociously murdered by a horde of brigands who from my plantation have committed every kind of mischief and excess which can be expected from a gang of atrocious bandites of that nature. So, here's what we see. Uh, the rebelling enslaved go into Andre's room. Andre's able to escape. I don't know how he does it, but he's able to slip away. His son is hacked to death with farming equipment. And this is sort of the first blood of this rebellion. Uh, Andre's escape as a plantation owner is going to play a big part of this in a bit. Um, but he's able to slip away under the cover of night, and he will have a lot to do with why this rebellion will ultimately fail. Very quickly, uh, the uh, re rebels will move from one plantation to the other every time they are gaining support because the enslaved peoples on those plantations are joining the cause. And it's the same story. Every time, their goal, as it turns out, is to sack New Orleans. And they want to make a statement along the way. As they continue to grow, uh, again, they kill and they murder plantation owners in the process. And they look for anything they can to help their cause. At one plantation, uh, they find uh, in a house a collection of militia uniforms. They find muskets. They find drums. They find flags. And when it's all said and done, you're going to see anywhere from uh, 200 to 500 uh, rebels wearing uh, these uniforms, marching in military formation. Because for them, this is not a brute uprising. For them, this is not uh, just a chance for madness and chaos. Uh pillage and plunder. For them, this is a political statement. They view themselves 
as an extension of what happened at Saint-Domingue um, with Jean-Jacques Dessolines and Toussaint Louverture. They view themselves as legitimate people fighting for their freedom in legitimate ways. So they wear the military uniform. They march with a drumbeat. They wave flags. Uh, this is by no means a rabble when it's all said and done. And that's what scares uh, people the most, because that's not what you hear whenever survivors, that is plantation owners, give their accounts. They don't tell stories about these men uh, being anything other than a wild, sort of chaotic uh, horde of people. And that's uh, very important. Plantation after plantations fall. Uh, as they get closer, and as the killings continue, uh, word gets out. And remember, the, the, the best soldiers in the region, the dragoons, are off fighting the Spanish. Uh, so all you really have uh, is militia. And this is when uh, a general named Wade Hampton, that's a name you might be familiar with, takes it upon himself with a commodore named John Shaw, and even the governor himself, to call on two volunteer uh, militia units, really just 30 troops, uh, who will put down the slave rebellion. Now, these are 30 troops, volunteers going against upwards of 500 uh, rebel enslaved, marching in formation with probably better equipment uh, and, and more of a focus goal. Even the commander of this volunteer militia said these guys were really unfit troops. They were not good soldiers. Uh, so, this is the best defense, I guess you can say, the Louisiana Territory can provide against this uprising, and it's really uh, not a good one. This will take us to one of the major critical moments uh, of the German Coast Uprising. Uh, it occurs on the plantation of a man named Jacques Fortier. The plantation of Jacques Fortier had been taken over by Charles Delonde, Cook, and Quamana and their rebels. And Wade Hampton, as a general, knew that. So he told his men, at the right time, we're going to strike, we're going to attack these slaves where they are, and put this rebellion down. Now, when they attacked, it was about 4 a.m., so they had the element of surprise just before morning, uh, the American volunteers run onto the 48 plantation, and what they find is, there's not a single rebel to be found anywhere. They're gone. Uh, they were duped. If you know anything about West African methods of warfare, this came right out of the playbook. So this came from Kukunquamana, but what Kukunquamana did uh, was that they left fires blazing on the 48 plantation in the middle of the night. They left campfires going. They left food over the fires. They wanted to sort of fool the Americans into believing they were still there, even though they weren't. Wade Hampton will tell his men to charge very valiantly. They get on the 48 plantation. There's no fight to be found because the rebels are long gone. They've fallen into a trap. Just to show that uh, he can recover, and this is really startling, Wade Hampton tells his men, just camp here for the day, uh, remainder of the night and day. Rest, relax. Uh, we'll let these 500 uh, insurgents continue to pillar and pillage and plunder and destroy the countryside. Uh, and they do. So now, what I'm saying is, what's between New Orleans, their ultimate goal, and these 500 rebel slaves? Nothing. Uh, I mean, this is a serious 
movement. This is a serious effort to disturb the peace and win their freedom. And again, when you read the sources, you hear the story. When you listen to maybe the textbooks that come out in the years that follow, you never hear this story because they did not want it to seem like that this got that close. They wanted no one to know that a group of enslaved peoples could come this close to really taking over a city like New Orleans. So how, how does it all break down? Uh, well, remember Manuel Andre. He escaped when the original initial attack on his plantation occurred. He actually made his way across the river. And he gathered together, uh, I, I suppose you could call them a militia, a collection of planters with guns and rifles, and they're ready to go. Uh, and they would ultimately do battle with uh, Delon's, uh and Quamana's men. We aren't clear on how it happens. What we do know is that the militia wins. Whether it be that they were better supplied than the insurgents, whether it be that uh, the enslaved fell apart based on their location, based on the time of day, based on the fact that they were not really a trained group of people, we don't know. Uh, but this quote-unquote battle uh, really sort of puts an end to uh, the German coast uprising. It's murky. It's part of history. We don't have all the details. Maybe we'll find out one day. We don't have it yet. But we do know that it comes apart. And that gives us the aftermath. One of the reasons the German coast uprising, the uprising of Kuk, Quamana, and Charles de Londe, uh, one of the reasons that it was so hard to contend with and so hard to talk about and deal with was the fact that in the aftermath of the event, there was a, con a directed and concerned effort in changing the nature of the event. There were uh, depositions and trials among some of the enslaved, some survivors. But newspapers, and again, and history books written in the time, uh, left out critical details about this event. They left out any sense that this was politically motivated. They made this seem like a random act of ultra-violence by an uncivilized savage peoples. They never talked about the fact that on the plantations, uh, there was a network of communications before the uprising, spreading news about what happened in Haiti, spreading news and developments around the world. Remember, this happens in January of 1811, because they know that the best soldiers in the region are off fighting the Spanish. There was never an indication of that. Um, they made sure that anyone who would be willing to continue that narrative through oral histories was eliminated. And when I say eliminated, uh, it was one of the most brutal suppressions, uh, really, in all of American history. Uh, they found some of the leadership of this. Uh, Charles DeLone himself uh, had his arms and legs cut off. He was shot twice, once in each thigh, and ultimately beheaded. Uh, all the way from New Orleans to the original Andre Plantation where the march began, the River Road, uh, they decapitated 100 of the men who participated in the uprising and put their heads on spikes all along the River Road. Uh, they hung their entrails, their arms, severed limbs, uh, their torsos, stumps burned, uh, all along the way, too. Some of the survivors were burned alive. Very few were hung. Um, it was almost 
like uh, a bloodlust had taken over the courts of Louisiana. Uh, and everyone who was involved, if they did get to trial, was promptly found guilty, immediately decapitated, and their body was put on some uh, sort of gruesome display. So you can still travel the river road today along the levees. You can still almost imagine, if you even knew whatever happened, the, the horrible scene that you would have with the heads on the spikes of these people who rose up uh, for their freedom. Now, how do we know the real story today? Well, we know the story because, again, of the depositions after. What you hear from the depositions when you read them closely. Because as much as history books and newspapers kind of altered this history as it played out, the original documents were preserved. You hear stories in the German Coast Uprising uh, about leaders from uh, Louisiana, leaders from Florida, leaders from Georgia, Kentucky. You hear about leaders from the Ashanti tribe of West Africa. You hear about leaders that came over from Haiti. I mean, this was a powerful collection of people in terms of their experiences. Uh, and they brought a lot to the rebellion. But again, this has largely been left off. So we have to be very careful whenever we talk about protecting our heritage and our history in a ubiquitous way because our history and our heritage uh, isn't always fully expressed. It's part of the beauty of this country is when we say our, we have a lot of people in mind. And while you do fear history being eliminated in some cases, uh, which of course is always a bad thing, uh, remember there are and have been a lot of histories eliminated before this. I mean, you're not going to see a plaque or a statue for Charles DeLond or Cook or Quamana anywhere in Louisiana um, until only recently. It's just not going to be there, uh, even though they were fighting for freedom as much as anyone was. So this is, again, sort of a nice piggybacking episode for us because we talked about the massive change that the Haitian Revolution brought. We can see how it manifests specifically here in America in the form of another uprising. Um in 1811. But we also talked uh, in the last episode about Tecumseh and his sort of dream of an of an Indian Republic uh, in the North. So here in 1811, you have a lot of things coming together. Massive Indian Rebellion in the North, massive slave rebellion in the South. You have the looming threat of a war with Britain on the Atlantic seaboard. There's very little, if you're an American, that would make you feel like this country is guaranteed to succeed and survive. The pressures come from a lot of different ways. Uh, but this rebellion, the German Coast Uprising, one of the most important rebellions in, in American history, and one of the least talked about. Now, here's what I can ask you, and I think this is important. Don't ask yourself, is Brady making this up? Because I can promise you I'm not. I have no skin in this game, and I have way too much respect for the material. Ask yourself, not am I making this up, but why don't you know about this? And when you start thinking about that question, that's some serious history. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.